Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to Episode 60, A Conversation with Gila Pfeffer. Gila is a writer, a freelance journalist, a breast cancer previvor and survivor. She's a mom of four teens, a wife, and a New York City transplant living in London. She joined me on the podcast to share about her story and her experiences Gila is incredible. We had a an incredible conversation that I hope that you enjoy and learn from. So let's get right to it. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Today, I'm here with Gila Pfeffer. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thanks for inviting me onto the show. Can you start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and your cancer diagnosis and story since that time. Here we go. Okay. My name is Gila Pfeffer and I am 47 years old. I am an American married to an American guy, have four American kids, and we live in London in the UK, which I believe has been in the news quite a lot recently for all sorts of reasons, Yes, which we will not cover in this particular episode. Um, uh, yeah, I've got four kids. They are 19, 17, 15, and 13. So we've already sent one off to college. So we are a quarter of our way into empty nest syndrome. And I must tell you that I'm loving it and the prospect of having an empty nest. So for all of you people out there who are worried about empty nesting, don't be, it's awesome. Uh, as far as the breast cancer thing goes, uh, my I, I kind of grew up with breast cancer. Um, as a kid, I never knew my mom's mom. Uh, she died when I was a little baby, about three months old. And I just, all I knew is that she had breast and ovarian cancer. Nothing else was spoken of that. Um, and as an Ashkenazi Jew with four grandparents, all of whom were Holocaust survivors, they talked more about um, sort of this, the, the Holocaust surviving aspect rather than anything breast cancer related. But I knew it was there. It was like there in whispers. And I don't know what it was about about me as a kid, but like something deep in me knew that breast cancer was something to just sort of file away as something to pay attention to. It was like some, some kind of enemy. I wasn't sure of how big of an enemy it was, but it was there. And sure enough, uh, when I was 18, my own mom was diagnosed with breast cancer and I was the oldest of five kids at the time. I'm still the oldest of five kids. Uh, and the youngest at the time was one. And when my mom told me that she had breast cancer, she was just 40. And unlike today where a breast cancer diagnosis is, you know, not a death sentence and there's so much you could do, especially with prevention and early detection and all that. The minute she said that to me, I just knew that she was gone. And sure enough, two years later, after fighting valiantly and going through horrendous treatment, she was gone. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was 20, my mom was gone. Uh, her mom was long gone. And that experience of watching her go through horrendous treatments and what in my mind I felt was preventable and avoidable somehow, I couldn't express to you how it was. I just knew that it was because it didn't make sense to me that her mom, it didn't make sense that something that, that took her mom would have taken my mom. Like, why didn't you see that coming? And it took her. So when I was 20, that's when I sort of kicked into high gear and said, okay, this is what I have to protect myself against, breast cancer. Um, there was no internet then. So I had to figure things out without the internet, which anyone listening, think about that for a minute. <laughs> yeah, because nowadays, I mean, there's still, a, there's a lot of good information on the internet. There's a lot of bad information on the internet, but it's there, right? And you have yeah. these resources, these support groups, these organizations, and that didn't exist back then or, you know. Yeah. And also as, as a young person, nobody really wanted to hear about my interest in preventing breast cancer. So I was 20 when my mom died and my youngest sister was three and there were three kids in between all of 
various ages. And I just, something, I can't explain to you what it is, but something told me that I had to watch out, not just for myself, but set, set a good example for the younger ones as well. Um, 10 years later, my dad actually died of colon cancer. So there was a lot of cancer going on in my family. And I just needed to change that narrative. So from the time I was 20, I'd say I became quite vigilant, whatever that meant at the time, this was 1994. Um, and I would start doing manual self exams, you know, that that was on my radar, I was aware of that. And eventually, when I was about, I think, 22 or 23, I went to, uh, I found a breast doctor, a breast surgeon, who would do uh, biannual exams on me. And even though they questioned why I was there so young, I was like, trust me, I need to be here. When I was 30, I went to Memorial Sloan Kettering to get a baseline mammogram. And they actually tried turning me away. They said, oh, you know, you're too young. 40 is the age to do it. And I said, look, I'll be dead at 40. And I was right, by the way. I mean, what's more validating? <laughs> I wish I would have gone back in there and said, See, I know what I'm talking about. I didn't have a medical degree, but you know, I fought for that baseline at 30 and you know, thank God the baseline was was clean, but I had been vigilant all along. I had done mammograms and ultrasounds and self-exams and I didn't smoke and I was, you know, in relatively decent shape, not like Miss Fitness, but I just knew what I had to do. And uh, so as I say, when I was 30, my dad died and that really kicked it into high gear. I was like, right, my grandparents, had all passed away by then at 30, I was the oldest living member of my entire family. Amazing. Exactly. And I was like, we've got to change this. We got to stop dying. Like we need to, there, there's modern medicine. There's something we can do here. And there was the internet by then. And so I did start researching it. Um, and I'd heard that a, a close friend of mine had said to me, you know, my mom had breast cancer and I had a BRCA test and I tested positive and I decided to have a prophylactic double mastectomy. And those words changed my life. This was well before Angelina Jolie got up in front of the world and did this and made, you know, drew yeah. a lot of necessary attention to the procedure. Um, when I heard that that was an option, I didn't hesitate. I said, I'm doing that. That's what I'm doing. Any measure I can take to minimize my risk is what I'm going to do. So when I was about 33, I tested positive for the BRCA1 gene which was in no way a surprise to me mm -hmm. whatsoever. And at 34, I went in for a prophylactic double mastectomy, uh, which interestingly I would not have done so quickly had we not been moving to London. My family uh, and I had decided to move to the UK for my husband's job. And I thought, you know what, let me get this procedure done. By the time we get to London, it'll be behind me. I'll be you know, back in fighting shape. I can talk about it on whatever terms I want. And uh, I better do this now. Well, it's a good thing I did it now uh, in November of 2008, because in that surgery, my surgeons found early but aggressive breast cancer on one side, two tiny tumors. And like, I'm speaking to a medical professional. So you'll understand when I tell you that they found, I think it was like, oh God, I used to know these numbers by heart, one millimeter and a two millimeter, tiny, super tiny, super tiny, super tiny, super tiny, super tiny that hadn't been picked up for whatever reason in all of my vigilance all along the way. And I felt both. When they're really small, because we get this question a lot, you know, people say, well, how come it wasn't picked up? And again, I always tell people it's got to be big mm. enough to show up on something. Um, mm. So it's almost, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a good thing you had the imaging and the mam, you know, the mastectomy when you did, because six months later, it could have been bigger. That was exactly it. Um, and I say that all the time, six months later, we would have been dealing with a very different situation. Mm -hmm. um, so what turned what started out as a prophylactic double mastectomy and a, and a preventative surgery became life-saving. And you no, know, my doctors were floored. I had a great surgeon. I was with um, uh, Wild, Wild Cornell, Columbia Presbyterian. And I just thought I had a great medical team. And anybody who I encountered from that point on was just like, what they had never seen this before, where somebody was so actively preventative and vigilant, and this thing just sort of snuck in. And I was 34. My mom was diagnosed at 40. So in our brains, we we had time. And the reason I talk about this so much is because it's about prevention. It's about early detection. 
you know, I, I can't think of how much more preventative or careful I could have possibly been. And it still got to me. And sure, it got to me, but we discovered it early enough that I could still do something about it. But every month on my Instagram feed, um, I, I do a feel it on the first post every mm -hmm. first of the month. I tell people feel it on the first and I do a funny post where I'm holding up pumpkins in October and dreidels in <laughs> December and, you know, beach balls in August. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just about, it, it doesn't have to be serious. It can be funny. You know, boobs are funny. Let's make a joke about it. As long as you're thinking about them. And I get a ton of messages from people, uh, you know, followers will send me, oh, I thought of you. I saw, I, I made eggs for breakfast and I saw two eggs, but I saw boobs. I'm like, good. That <laughs> means that I'm getting through to you and you're thinking about it. And by thinking about it, it means you're more likely to check yourself. And by checking yourself, you're more likely to catch something. Mm -hmm. And go to someone like you and say, hey, Dr. Toplinski, I caught something. <laughs> what do I do? But no, and it's true. You know, the key is knowing, knowing what your breasts feel like, knowing what's normal for your body, knowing what's not normal for your body so that you can act on it when it doesn't feel right. You know, or you may not know if it feels right, but you may know something just is off this month. Right. And so I always tell people, I'd rather you call me every month and say, I feel something then just to, to wait and to sit on something for a year until you have your next mammogram. So tell me about the BRCA piece of it. So I have two questions. One, you know, we, this comes up a lot. Have you, and how, if you have, how did you talk to your children about this and how has it shaped their lives and in terms of when they're going to consider screening? Cause I, and, and this may be a personal question, so feel free to not answer, but a lot of my patients tell me that they have this guilt, that they have this mutation that they may or may not pass on to their children. So mm -hmm. unwrap some of that. So it's interesting that you use the word um, guilt and that you even brought up talking to kids at all, because that was, that was a huge deal for me. Um, the biggest part of my experience, when I found out that there was cancer in there, and when I found out that I was going to have to have chemo, the very chemo that my mom had, the very chemo that I had undergone this nine hour procedure. And by the way, I used my stomach fat and muscle as reconstruction as opposed to implants. Cause after giving birth to four kids, I had tons of fats <laughs> and I'm like, I was gonna get a free tummy tuck out of it. Yeah. But it was, it was a big deal. It was a, it was a huge surgery. And it was, it, I don't think that I would have had the courage or the strength to do it. Had I not had these four kids to live for, like I adore my husband. He is just about the most supportive person you'll ever meet. You know, he's, perfect for me and we're happy together, but I don't know that I would have had the, the, the courage to get on that table and undergo anesthesia. It, it was a big deal to have that surgery. And I took a photo of my four kids into surgery with me and they didn't want me to bring it in because they said, Oh, you know, contamination and sterilization. I'm like, here's the deal. I'm not going in there unless this picture <laughs> comes in with me. So they put it in a little, you know, yeah. uh, hermetically sealed for your protection Ziploc baggie stuck under my pillow. And when I woke up from surgery, the first thing I wanted to see was that photo. So when you talk about kids, they're the reason I'm alive today. Now, when the breast cancer diagnosis came in, a shock to all of us, which was followed by chemo, a shock to all of us, and it was preventative chemo. Um, and the reason for chemo, by the way, was there was a no dissection four weeks after my surgery to make sure that the nodes were clear. There were micrometastases in there. There were six cells. And they said, look, you're 34, you have BRCA, yeah. you have family history, get that chemo. And I was like, but what if I don't? <laughs> and I, we'll go there at a different time. But I did. I had it because, as they say in England, in for a penny, in for a pound. I'd already come this far. Mm -hmm. Just have the goddamn chemo and just deal with it. And, you know, and it sucked. So how do you hide that from a one, three, five, and seven-year-old? God gave me really oblivious children and really good friends who took these, these kids whenever I was not feeling well. Um, and I focused a lot of my energy on hiding it from them. I slept in a hat, I showered in a shower cap. I was always in, you know, a very natural looking wig with a hat and they, for whatever reason, just didn't ask me any questions. They were just happy to have their mom around. And I'd never told them. I just thought this is all preventative. The chemo is preventative. Subsequent to that, I had my ovaries out, um, you know, of course, to reduce my chances of ovarian cancer, which comes along with BRCA1. And 
two months later, we moved to London. So it was like, okay, new adventure. Let's move to London, new country. Hooray, we're driving on the other side of the street. Cool. And I knew that one day I would tell them. I just didn't think of how. And it just started to weigh on me after a while because you get in this comfort zone where they don't know. And they know that you're very active in the breast cancer space and you talk about it a lot and people come to you asking questions a lot. They know that their grandma who they never met died of it, their great grandma who they never met died of it. But there came a time where I had to, to tell them about it. And that time came when I was invited by, um, have you ever heard of Sharsheret? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Sharsheret is yeah. a great organization Absolutely. that supports young Jewish women in the fight against breast cancer. I went to high school with their founder who unfortunately passed away, Rochelle Sharath. She was a year ahead of me. And I was very, very actively involved with them. And in 2018, they invited me and one of my younger sisters to come and speak at their annual uh, benefit brunch. And that meant I had to fly to New Jersey. So I had to explain to my kids where I was going and why. And that, that was my jumping off point. That's when I sat them down individually. And they were sort of tweens and little kids at that point. And I told them, in appropriate language, my story. And it was amazing. It was cathartic for me. It was amazing for them. Each one of them reacted in their own very positive way from my daughter, who at the time must have been, gosh, she must have been 14. She's like, mom, you're my hero. I was not expecting that. And, you know, my my son, who I guess was 15 or 16, just sort of welled up with tears. And it occurred to me that it was the right time they needed to know about this, not only for their own medical history, but to know what role they played in making, you know, in contributing to the fact that their mom was still here and how important they were to me and that I did everything that I could. They, they needed to know that I did, I, w- I did and always would do everything I could do mm-hmm. to be their mom. So in terms of talking to them about medical history and genetics, I had built it up over time where they knew that they, they, they know there's a family history. And I talk about, about my BRCA1 uh, gene status and I have three sons and a daughter. Now, as you know, you can pass this on to boys or girls. I don't think it's any more of a risk for my daughter than for my sons. Um, but when I told them, it was also an opportunity to start talking about prevention mm-hmm. and checking yourself and awareness. And awareness is the key. And as you say, you don't know what you're looking for, but you know that you're looking for change. You know, if you walk into your house and somebody moved your couch six feet to the right, you'd notice it because you know what it's supposed to look like. You're like, something's off here. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for something off. So in terms of, so now they all know when we talk about it very openly, in terms of the guilt factor, um, interestingly, even though I'm a Jewish person and I'm pre-programmed to feel guilt <laughs> in all situations, right? Yes. I, I don't feel guilty. And here's why. Knowledge is power. And I feel, if anything, fortunate that I know exactly what we're up against. I know what what's in our arsenal. I know that breast cancer is one of the most well-researched, uh, widely talked about cancers. It, it has possibly the most press and uh, you know medical eyes on it. So if anything, I feel like yeah, I prefer not to pass it on to them, but given the goodie bag of what's available, at least we know what we're talking about. At least we've got, you know, people like you. I'm friends with my oncologist now. It turns out we're the same age. While she was my doctor, it was very like, you're my doctor, I'm the patient. And now, you know, we're buds. When I go to New York, I go see her and we have a coffee. And I just, I lean into the difficult things. You know, when you lose a mom at 20 and you lose a dad at 30 and you've lost your grandparents and you're the oldest person in your family and you've got all kinds of difficulty um, and hardship. And and I grew up with, you know, a lot of financial struggles. You just, you just figure out how to lean into things and face them head on. There's no point in running away or burying your head in the sand. And I think, I believe that that's what my mom did. Like she watched her mom, who was a Holocaust survivor, die. And I think that she just kind of didn't, you know, she's not here for me to ask her, but I do feel like she didn't necessarily, she wasn't that careful about mammograms maybe. And she had kids across a whole span of, um, of decades. And so the, the answer is no, I don't feel guilty. If anything, I feel good that I have information, I have experience. We have access to great medical care on two continents. 
And I think that the devil you know is better than the devil that you don't know. Yeah, I, I think that perspective is is so true. You know, if, and I like how you phrased it as leaning in mm. the difficulties. You know, you're right. I mean, it is what it is. And, you know, knowing it, it's been there, it, you know, it didn't develop, you know, you, it's an inherited mutation. Um, but I, I like that perspective. And I think it's going to help a lot of women who are still struggling with their diagnosis of a genetic mutation and how that plays a role in, in their family dynamics. I mean, here's the way you can, you, you can put it to your patients. Let's say the only reason they have that guilt is because we have the knowledge of the gene because of genetics. If you go back in time, 50 years, they wouldn't have the guilt, but they also wouldn't have the knowledge and they wouldn't be able to prepare the next generation. So I say, it's like anything else that's a, that's a danger to you. You know, we wear seatbelts in cars today because at some point somebody realized that not wearing seatbelts was dangerous and stupid. Mm-hmm. Every time you see a traffic light somewhere, chances are that traffic light went up because unfortunately there was an incident that took place that said, hey, let's put a traffic light here. So I just, my perspective is, you know, I'm not, I'm not sunshine and roses, but what I am is very pragmatic and very grateful for experience and for knowledge and very happy to pass that on to anyone who's interested in it. Um, it, You know, being afraid and running away from things doesn't get you very far. And the proof for for me is very close. It's my mom and my dad. They both just kind of were so busy with trying to raise a family and dealing with financial problems and just pretending that what was coming wasn't coming that look where, where it got them. So what's the point in that? Take what you know and do everything you can to alter your course. And science and medicine and research has evolved so much, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I mean, yes, there were mammograms, but there wasn't this push for awareness and advocacy. Mm. Um, It just, it didn't exist. I mean, when you talked about Angelina Jolie, I mean, I remember, I can't remember how old I was at the time, but you know, it was like the Angelina Jolie disease, right? It was like, this is what, and, and it wasn't, but she was the one who it had been there all before her. Oh, and I was so angry at her because she stole my thunder. She got up and she's like, and I had a preventative cell mastectomy because my mom's had a breast cancer. I mean, I'm not really making fun of her, but I am because I was really annoyed because when I, I went around my neighborhood saying, I'm going to do this preventative surgery. And this was in 2008. And at the time it was not well-known. It was not widely accepted. Mm-hmm. I got a mixed reaction from people from, you know, you go girl to that's crazy. Why would you mangle your body? Why don't you wait and see what, what happens to, did you ask your rabbi? Um, and let me tell your listeners, no, I did not ask my rabbi because I don't need to ask my rabbi if I can save my life or not. And post-surgery, when we did encounter one of our rabbis, they said, I would have hundred percent have told you to do that very thing. Like, why would I ask a rabbi if, if I'm, if I have permission to use a life-saving yeah. technique, um, which I knew instinctively was my only ticket out of, you know, cancer land. And even then it still got me. But so when Angelina Jolie got up uh, in 2012, I will never forget because I was like, I did that three years ago. What's the big deal? But she had way more press coverage. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I was, I was, you know, as, as an irritated as I was that I couldn't spread that word, I was happy that she did it because I said, now the world will see, now the world will accept, now the world will, will understand that for all of the mammograms and ultrasound mm-hmm. and, and manual, you know, self exams, there's more you can do. And if you've got the BRCA gene, I don't know if your listeners know, but you've got an 87% chance of getting breast cancer. I mean, they play with the numbers, but it's it's in the 80s. Hi. That's, that's a really high percentage. And by removing your breast tissue, you remove that percentage down to 5%. Well, who wouldn't take that? Who, who wouldn't improve their odds that way? So she did a lot uh, to promote that. And subsequently she had her ovaries removed, didn't she? Yes, I believe, I believe so. Yeah, which I had done as well. And I just, for, for me, it was very validating to know that the world is now looking at this as a common practice, a viable option, you know, not mangling your body. There are plenty of people who would still say, it's not for me. I'm attached to my breasts and I just couldn't do that. That's cool. But you know what? Two of my younger sisters had said that too. They said, we support you and your decision to do this will help you in any way we can, which they did. They were amazing with my kids. 
but after they saw what happened to me at 34, they ran mm-hmm. to get gene tested. And they, two out of three of them tested positive for different BRCA's by the way, not all the same BRCA. Oh, so that's okay. exactly, that's fun. And at the ages of respectively of 26 and 29, they had prophylactic double mastectomies. And I like to think that I contributed to that. You know, when my mom was on her deathbed at Lenox Hill Hospital, one of the last things I said to her, I whispered in her ear and I said, I promise you I'll look after all of, our, all of my younger siblings. I'll look after the kids. I was 20 years old. I was in college. Like, what did I even know what that meant? I didn't know what it meant to look after them. And obviously I didn't raise them. I didn't, you know, pay their bills. Um, I did plenty for them, but not necessarily as a mom would do. But in going through my experience and they wouldn't have gone for genetic testing and had those surgeries had I not been diagnosed with cancer. So as sucky as it was, at least I can say it meant something. Yeah. You saved their their lives. Yeah. Not to be dramatic about it, but I, I do think of it that way. And, and I'm really, I'm really pleased with that. I feel like, you know, I, hopefully my mom's like, you know, thanks. You, you kept your promise. Yeah. Well, I think that's why it's so important to share these stories, right? You are this conversation may convince somebody else to go and get tested because I, mm. I see a lot of people who don't want to get tested. And I think w- one of the big issues in the Jewish community is that, so the way it's not, it's not in the Jewish community, but the guidelines say that if you're of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry and you get diagnosed with breast cancer, you automatically can get, you know, your insurance will automatically pay for genetic testing regardless of age. Really? Um, because if you're, so if you're 60 years old and you get diagnosed with breast cancer and you don't have a family history, your insurance won't cover genetic testing. But if you're Jewish, they automatically will cover. But that's great, except it's too late, right? You want to test. We know that Ashkenazi Jews have a higher risk of having a BRCA mutation. So if you could test people before they got breast cancer, well, that's moving the needle, right? Testing them after. I mean, it's, you need to do it. It's helpful for family members, but it's a little bit too late at that point. I didn't even know that insurance paid for it. Yes. Um, that's if you're according to guidelines, um, if you're hmm. Jewish, any, any diagnosis of breast cancer, any age, they'll cover it. Um, and is that new? Is that recent? Or is that, has that been a couple of years? It's been a couple of years. It's not, I mean, I will say like a lot of people will see people in their seventies who get diagnosed and you know, that's not a BRCA mutated cancer. You know, they have no family history. Typically we see the BRCA cancers much earlier on thirties, forties, twenties, even. Um, but we still offer the testing because they all have family members and kids and grandkids and it's important, but a lot of people don't want to do it. Um, which is, it's okay. You know, everyone gets their decision. Everyone gets that choice. But we see a lot of younger people who don't necessarily, whose parents had cancer and they don't want to get tested. And mm-hmm. I always stress that getting tested and maybe going for that mastectomy to is preventive, you know, or significantly reduces your risk rather than waiting. Because once you have a mammogram and you find a cancer, you're not preventing it. You're just catching it at an earlier stage. So there's a big difference that doesn't always kind of get brought up well that's that's why I mean I'm really happy to be here speaking to your listeners because I um I label myself on all of my social media as both a pre-viver and a survivor mm-hmm. and I was a pre-viver for six days until my surgeon called me and said you're not going to believe this and I was like uh okay I'm a survivor now and I, by the way I hate the word survivor but it's just a word I use so that people can understand it's just people, a word people understand and identify with. So I use it, but yeah. you know, I don't survivorship to me Im- implies victimhood and, and I never felt like that, but it's, it's the right word to use, but you can be both a previvor and you can be a survivor. And um, I very much understand and respect someone's decision to not want to know because it's a heavy thing to carry around. For some people, they feel like it's a ticking time bomb. For me, I was like, whether my genetic result is BRCA or not, I'm having a prophylactic double mastectomy because my mom died at 42 yeah. and her mom died at 49. And who the hell knows what came before that? Cause everybody was killed in the Holocaust. So mm-hmm. as far as I was concerned, this was happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the BRCA diagnosis was just sort of um, one more uh, sort of 
push to do it and also important uh, family genetic history. It's a very difficult and personal decision and people view these things in all kinds of ways. As you say, you must see a complete spectrum of Mm -hmm. people from people like me who are like, let's do this to people who don't want to know. And, you know, I get it. It's very much experience and personality based, but I, I can understand how you as a medical professional would want to give your patients or potential patients the best chance. Um, to say that that a mammogram catches something that's already there, you know, that's what I was looking to avoid. So I did mm-hmm. that, I yeah. did that procedure and it was still there. So I can kind of argue both sides of the coin and I can I can say, if you catch it early, if you decide not to have the double mastectomy and you catch it early and you're hypervigilant and super pre- preventative, um, you may catch early enough to need only, you know, nothing more than a lumpectomy yeah, exactly. or the radiation or the whatever. And it all depends on what part of it is important to you. Some people are like, oh, I love my breasts. I would never get rid of them. For me, uh, I didn't care about my breasts. I'd, I'd nursed four children and I was so happy to have been able to have done that. And, you know, losing my hair was the worst part for me because that you can't hide it from the world. It was like, mm-hmm. that, that was the most undignified thing in the universe for me. And although I had great prosthetics, that's what kept me up at night. What if my kids see it? What if they freak out? I didn't let anyone see me bald, not even my husband. I was like, look, I love you, but this, I need to keep this to myself. I didn't want to see myself bald. I tried to hide it from myself for two weeks until one day I caught sight of myself and the bathtub chrome mm. tap I was like what who the hell is that oh it's you and then <laughs> I made my peace with it but everyone sort of you know has has their own thing and it all depends where you are in the spectrum of, of saving your life and your perspective mm-hmm. if you're not thinking about that death is coming to get you your viewpoint is very different if you're like me and you've seen you know I watched my mom go through the worst worst stuff and just horrendous things, you know, and I watched her die and I made her promises when she died and I was so young and her kids were so young. To me, a big slice across my stomach and and the scar there and my boobs being made of, you know, I call them Franken boobs, who cares? I don't care, but I understand people who do. And I think I would imagine that as, as a doctor, you can only guide people as best you can from your point of view, but know that you're speaking to a person who has their own point of view. And I think, you know, it's all about its perspective and it's also where you are in life, right? So if you are in your twenties and and it's dating and it's marriage and it's babies, Mm. pregnancy, right? And, and you want to nurse your children, you want to have children, so many implications of it. Um, You know, we see that all the time and people say, well, how do I, you know, my young patients who've been diagnosed or who have the mutation, how do I tell a potential partner, right? Mm -hmm. That I've had breast cancer and there's a lot, I think everyone walks their own path. Um, And I, I feel strongly that you have to empower yourself with education and knowledge and then make the decision that is right for you and your family and your, you know, people in your life. And mostly for you. And, and when choosing a person to be with, you know, you're going to know who your person is. Like if your person can't handle that, then that's not your person. Mm-hmm. And that's not, it's not a commentary at all on people who would say, that's not for me. I want somebody who isn't sliced and diced or hasn't been through those sorts of traumas. You know, that's okay, but you'll find your other person. And like, I, I was listening to one of your more recent episodes about, um, somebody who decided to go, she was in her twenties, wasn't she? Yeah. She decided mm-hmm. not to have yeah. a reconstruction. And she said, you know, she was an athlete, a runner. She decided after her mastectomy to stay flat. And she did have to address things like dating. These are things that it, it, you can either tell somebody who you're dating that this is happening, or if it happens 10 years down the road, how is your then partner or spouse gonna deal with it? You know, when I met my husband, Here's a fun story. I met my husband uh, in late September. And the very first day that we met, we were, you know, it was a Saturday night out for a walk. And I don't know how it came up, but he said it had recently been his birthday. And I was like, oh, when's your birthday? And he told me his birthday and I froze in my tracks. It was my mom's birthday. Wow. And she had only died a couple of years earlier. I know, right? Chills. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to freak this guy out, but I'm marrying him. 
Um, and I'm two years older than him, so I really didn't want to freak him out. But I, you know, I'm not a hugely sign superstitious spiritual person, but I get when the universe is talking to me and 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 I just knew. Mm-hmm. And um, but, but by the time and he it turned transpired later that he felt the same way about me, which is great. But he knew marrying me that he was he fell in love with a person whose mom had died at 42. And he understood, even though there wasn't the language around uh, BRCA or any or gene testing at that point, you know, genetics were were there, but they were very much a scientific mm-hmm. endeavor. They weren't for like the layman, like people like me who could talk about genes of all kinds. And so he understood that both my mom and her mom had died of breast cancer. And he knew that there was a family history and people know what a family history is. Now, some people would say, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm sure in the matchmaking and dating world, there's a lot of, I don't want any part of that, but, and that's okay. Like, don't go down the road. You don't want to go, won't want to go down, but <laughs> there's something waiting around the corner for you. And as I said before, the only question is, do you know what's around the corner or do you want a big old fat surprise and not know what's around the corner? And, you know, I'm with somebody who loved me no matter what, and just kind of instinctively knew that we would fight whatever was coming our way. And he knew in me that I was a person who just wouldn't sort of lay down and take whatever was coming to her, that I would mm-hmm. figure it out and, and, and use every weapon in my arsenal. And, and, and as time goes on, more weapons come into the arsenal, as you've seen. Yeah, of course. Um, so that, that's, an, that's an important, these are all very important things and very personal things that um, I don't know how people make these decisions, but I will say that you want to be with somebody who, you know, what does it say? If you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best or something like that. It's true. Like no one's perfect. We are a huge package of things. And you got to be able to deal with whatever's coming your way. No, and I will say that, you know, my patients who tell me that, you know, they're dating after, after cancer, you know, there's people who find the love of their life and, and they're able, you know, and they're like, yep, okay, you had cancer, whatever, like everyone's got something, right? I mean, it's not whatever, but you know what I mean? They kind of, they roll with it. And, and then there are people who, again, like you said, don't want to have anything to do with it, but then they're not your people they're not exactly it's finding your people you need to find your people and you've got people at different levels you know you've got your a A tier your top tier Mm -hmm. friends your your mid your lower tier friends and everyone serves their purpose but the the people who are going to be uh closest with you are are going to have to be able to roll with your punches you know Mm -hmm. there's do you know have you ever heard of uh nora mcinerney yeah I, i love her podcast love so that she has a terrible yeah literally like she could just go blah 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 for an hour and i listen to it yep Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i'm very much influenced and and relate to what she talks about and she talks a lot about you know all the difficult things all of the horrible things in the world she talks to guests who have been through the absolute worst today every tuesday her podcast comes out today her guest was edith eager who wrote both The Choice and Now the Gift. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Edith's a 90-something-year-old Holocaust survivor who has the craziest stories to tell. And someone like Nora, like nothing phases her. She can take anyone's uh, pain and hardship and, and grief and just sit with it and accept it and say, I'm, I, I hear you, I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. So I think what people most need when they're looking for someone to support them is someone to just kind of not try to make it okay or fix it. Cause some things, as you know, in your profession cannot be fixed. You, you must have, actually, I should ask you that. What, what does that feel like to have a relationship with a patient who ultimately doesn't make it? Like, what do you do with that? It's hard. And, you know, it happens a lot. Um, and I think you just, you know, you sit, like you said, you sit with it. Um, and mm. I sometimes in, I have this conversation way too often, unfortunately, but you know, because I treat breast and ovarian or gynecologic cancers. So, you know, sometimes those are very aggressive and, and don't do as well in some, in some cases. Um, and, you know, I, the way that I view my role is that sometimes we cannot control the trajectory of the disease, 
but we can, we can make their quality of life better during that time. And so if, if death and end of life is coming at us, but there still is joy. Right. And I try to really put that across to patients that, you know, there may come a time where we have to say we're stopping treatment, you know, that there is no, you know, we we're not going to do cancer directed therapy, but I say to them, you're still here. And what is it that brings you joy in your day? Right. And, and I tell that to anyone going through something hard, whether it be cancer or not, the, you know, the only way out of something is through it. And so you, you travel with it, you, you know, again, and, and there's good, I mean, there's good in every day um, yeah. being an oncologist and has really shaped my perspective on that. Even when things are at their absolute worst, look, you know, it's something so small, but like going to get a coffee, you know, calling someone on the phone, like those are little things in our day that can bring us some happiness. I don't clock out of this job at five o'clock. You take it home with you. There's people that you can't get out of your mind. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there's no good answer, but I've always said that the day that this stops meaning something to me is the day you should stop being an oncologist. You know? and, and you're, you're quite young. I mean, yeah. I, I'm just looking at you. I'm, I can say that <laughs> it's, it's a fact. I'm not yeah. guessing. I'm just saying you're young. Yeah, no, yeah. So you've got hopefully like a long career ahead of you. And I know mm-hmm. that, um, you know, my oncologist, it, so I guess I went in to see her. I first met her when I was uh, I had just turned 35. So she, I later learned was also 35. And that's really young. She was just at the beginning of her career. And I sometimes think about that. And I, I've spoken to her about it subsequently, like, you know, how did you deal with that? How did you deal with seeing a person your age who I, I, I only later found out that she, the lens through which she viewed me that, you know, I wasn't just a patient, that I was a person and she could see that I cared about my appearance. And I, would come to chemo sort of trying to look somewhat put together so that I didn't become the classic chemo patient, you know, huddled, shivering in a blanket. And she formed an impression of me without me knowing it. Um, and that, that meant a lot to me. Like I really appreciated that she was looking at me as, as a person and understood that I had four little kids at home and we were moving to London and I had a husband who was terrified, yeah. absolutely terrified. Even though my prognosis was outstanding, you know, it's scary as hell. Like we were two young people raising tiny kids. And he was a hugely busy, um, young associate in a big law firm. And it, it was just, it was a lot. And she, um, I, I think it helped a lot that we, so like, I remember walking in and seeing that she was pregnant and she had a picture of, um, a young boy on her desk. And that just humanized her for me. It made me feel like this woman is not only going to tell me which horrible chemicals are going to be pumped into my veins, but she'll also get where I'm coming from and know, you know, why I'm doing this. I know that my life is not about sitting in this recliner PVC chair. It's about what happens when I leave this building. And, and, and that's what I thought was so great, but it, it did occur to me that God, the things she must see and the things she must have to say. And I almost felt good about being able to give her a happy <laughs> end, you know, a happy story to tell. I was like, you know, hey, you know, I'm going to skip out of here and be fine, right? In fact, I had said to her when we sat down for that first meeting, and I never thought I'd need an oncologist because I thought the hard part was over with the surgery. Yeah. I'm preventative. I'm done. No, here I am with an oncologist. And I said to her, do I actually need chemo? Like, what if I don't do it? And she will never forget this. And this is going in the book that I'm working on, which is about the whole cancer story, but also sort of everything else I've endured and how I just keep taking stuff life throws at me and building, you know, Mm -hmm. building it into who I am and, and, and making sure that it becomes a strength and not a weakness. And she said, you could probably walk out of here today and never come back and be fine. And that was, I realized later, you know, obviously my first instinct was, okay, bye. (laughs) Nice meeting you. But I could, I looked over to my husband, Phil, and I was like, I can't do that. I could see, you know, he's a lawyer. He's all about that data. Mm-hmm. He's all about those stats. And he was, I was not getting away without, you know, having the chemo. And I just understood that she was empowering me, not putting the decision on me, but making me understand that this was not a, a case of shrinking a tumor. This was not about having scans. Yeah. This, like everything else I had done was preventative. And she understood my desperate need to do everything I possibly could to stay alive. So that was her way of saying, she, you know, 
perhaps a more old school uh, medical person might have said, you know, well, you better do it or else. But she didn't say that. Yeah. She said, mm -hmm. you, you probably would be fine. And that empowered me to say, you know what? I'm going to do this. It's going to suck. I don't want to. I've got this guy sitting next to me looking terrified. I've got four little kids at home. I don't want to look back ever and say there was something that I could have done. Well, and I that's, didn't do. that's what it boils down to, right? We have these conversations every day. And I, I say the exact same thing to patients. I said, most likely, you know, the statistics, because we have a lot of people who have these tiny little things and it's all preventive. And you say, well, the statistics are still in your favor. You know, even if you don't do treatment or even if you don't take the tamoxifen or chemo, but I don't know if I know 3% of people are going to recur, I don't know which 3%, right? So it's all, that's the problem. And that's where yeah. science needs to go is if we could identify, you know, all of you people with the same size cancer, but only these two people are going to recur and they need treatment. Everyone else can go yeah. home. We just don't have that information yet. But and you're working with the best information you have, which is exactly. better than the information you had 10 years ago and 20 years ago. Look, here's a statistic story. So after my surgery, when I thought everything was great and fine and dandy and whew, what a relief, what a weight off my shoulders. I got that phone call six days later, drains coming out of me, stitches everywhere and heard the worst thing I could possibly have ever heard and something I was not expecting. And it's that we found cancer. You're going to have to come back and do a no dissection to just check that your nodes are clear, which they expected them to be. So more surgery wasn't something I was really interested in, but there I was four weeks later in a much different mindset than I was the first time. This time it was like, are we freaking back here now, really? And when I woke up, my surgeon told me that they had done a frozen section, which um, I'll explain to everyone is sort of a rudimentary splitting open the sample that they take to see what's inside. It's not a thorough investigation, but it's a, we don't see anything in here, but it's not, it's like when you open your purse, look inside, don't see your keys, start looking elsewhere as opposed to dumping your entire purse out on the table and saying, Oh, here they are. Between I my old love receipts this. And I cookies. love this analogy and I'm going to use it because it's a fantastic analogy. I love it. I'm, I'm a writer. I'm all about those analogies. They just, they just come out of me. And it's also how I understand the world. Yeah. You mm -hmm. know? So when I woke up and she said, we didn't see anything in the frozen section, which was a good sign, but I had been so you know, my sense of awareness and my sense of sort of entitlement to being fine had changed because they had found cancer in the first surgery where they never should have. I said, and what are the odds that you'll find something when it goes to the lab and you slice and dice it and really do a thorough investigation? And she said, there's a 90% chance that you won't find something. And I knew right then and there that I was going to be the 10%. I can't, I, I'm, not, I'm not, I'm not one of the, I don't manifest bad things to myself. I'm not a negative person, but I just, I understood. It was, it was more of an awareness. It was a way of pre preparing myself. I was like, it's going to come back. I will be the 10%. They're going to find something. And the only question is, what are we doing about that? Whereas my, my surgeon felt really 90% is pretty great. If you get a 90 on the test, you're like, I got a 90 on a test, but when you're Unless you have a Russian Jewish mother like mine, who were like, oh, put in, what happened to the other 10%? Yeah, exactly. Couldn't get an idea on a test. <laughs> what happened to the, why is your, why did you get extra credit? Yeah. yeah. What? You only got 101? That's terrible. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> your, co your cousin over here got 152. <laughs> but this is what it is about statistics. And, um, you know, everyone's having conversations now about all we talk about are statistics with, with COVID. Um, with the vaccine and what's the rate of, you know, blood clots and what's the rate of the, the, the efficacy of the vaccine and how reliable are these tests? Like we are bombarded with statistics now. And I, I think that we don't care much about them until we become them. Yeah. And so the, the key really is to just keep it humanized and say, I can fall on either side of these numbers, no matter what the odds are, 99 and one, you could be the one, why not? And, you? and then if you're the one, then it's a hundred percent for you. Right. So it doesn't, exactly. doesn't matter at that point. Exactly. So I think a lot of it is I, I have, you know, as I said, I'm 47 and I've seen some stuff and it doesn't mean that it hasn't pained me or affected me negatively in some ways, but more than negatively, it's affected me quite positively. And it's given me the opportunity to, you know, pack it into myself and say, right, what are you going to do with that now? What are you going to do about it now? How will that 
motivate you? How will that catapult you? What will you pass on to your kids? Um, and my kids are having a, a much more comfortable childhood and upbringing than I ever had. And sometimes I worry, well, where's the adversity? Like, how are they going to, where, maybe I should like, you know, <laughs> neglect them a bit or something. I don't know. It, it, you can argue both ways, but I, I know that a lot of where I, I came to and where I am today and where I hope to continue going is through the, what some might call the, the bad or negative experiences I've had. I view them as challenges, as learning opportunities. And I am so happy to speak to anyone who reaches out. When you reached out to me through Instagram, I was like, yes, let's talk about it. I get messages all the time from people saying, um, you know, thanks for your feeling on the first post. Because of you, I checked myself and I found a lump and I went to my doctor and I, and I had a scan. Great. That's my, my cancer is counting for something. My experience isn't just my experience. It's now it's, it's building momentum. It's doing something good. So if people can take their, their, their tough things and like the worst things that have happened to them and use them for good in some way or another, it just, it, it tips the scales in favor of, okay, well, that was worth it. Yeah. This was amazing. Um, we could talk for hours, but I do want to all of your time. And- you have little kids to yes. put to bed. And I have teenagers who are, you know, elbow deep into their phones right now. Well, so. yeah, and it's it's getting late in the UK, but um, this, this was really, really wonderful. And I, I think so much great, great information for people. Um, and, you know, thank you. Whenever your book comes out, I am very much looking forward to reading it. I will notify you of it immediately. Thank you. And I also want to tell whoever's listening, and I hope you'll put this um, in the text of the mm-hmm. podcast that I'm on Instagram as at Gila Pfeffer. And if anybody ever wants to reach out and DM me regarding anything, breast cancer or otherwise, I respond to every single message, usually within a day or two. I take um, people who take the time to message me, I take it very seriously and I, I appreciate it and I respect it. And if I can be of any assistance, uh, or even in, in a shoulder to lean on or an ear to listen, reach out. I'm there. Thank you. That was incredible. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Gila. She is incredible. And I learned a lot and it was wonderful talking with her. You can follow her on Instagram at Gila Pfeffer, or you can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Dr. Toplinski. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be honored if you can leave a rating on and or review over an Apple podcast, as that is the best way to help me grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Have a wonderful weekend, and I will see all of you next week.